John chapter 11, of course, is this chapter where Jesus comes to the grave of Lazarus. And in, I, I think it's beautiful how the Lord has coordinated these things or uh, allowed them to fall out, but we have spent time studying that. And then we had uh, Easter and resurrection service where we jumped into 1 Corinthians 15, which has a lot to do with what we see in John chapter 11, when Jesus states that he is the resurrection and the life. And then from there, we went into this past week where we had opportunity to, uh, in a sense, send off uh, a loved one in uh, the memorial service and burial service for Alicia Owens. And uh, I think it all comes together for an understanding. And by the way, today's uh, message would be entitled, uh, Truth or Comfort Through Knowledge. Have you ever had somebody try to comfort you with something that wasn't true? Yeah, this happened to me a lot when I was in school. You know, I'd say, oh, I don't know if I'm going to do well on the test. And, and people around me were just so positive. Oh, you'll do great. And I was like, you don't, I didn't study. I'm glad you think I'll do great. But uh, yeah, so a number of times in my life, I've had people express their confidence in me and try to comfort me by expressing their confidence in me. And I'm telling you, uh, it's not a good way to encourage somebody, especially if they're honest with themselves. Oh boy, I'm in trouble, right? It's interesting too that at times of, of loss or times of deep questions, people try to comfort us through speculation or through things that sound nice and sound like something we want to hear. But it's interesting that God has created in us a desire for truth. And as we start to think through that and recognize that it's just speculation, it brings no comfort and the doubt still remains. But I tell you what, the Lord has given very clear truth in the issue of death that should bring us great comfort. And so today I want us to look at this passage in John 11, and really it'll be just a jumping off point to a more topical study of the aspect of heaven and death and salvation. And so if you'll look at John chapter 11, down at verse 38 is where we'll pick up our reading, and we'll reference this a few times, but we'll also look at a number of other scriptures, so I hope that you'll turn to these different passages as we go through them and look at them uh, with me. John chapter 11 and verse 38. Jesus has already come back. Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's spoken to Mary and Martha. He's asked them to, the, to take him to the tomb or the grave. And we have verse 38. Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And we had, when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. This is the purpose of the book of John, right? This is the purpose of the book of John, that we would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. This is what takes place in this passage. Today I want us to take time to consider what Jesus has done to death, particularly for the believer. As we come through this week of resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we spoke of his victory over sin and death and hell. We spoke of the beautiful truth that, O oh, death, you have no sting. The grave has no victory for the believer. When Jesus claimed in John 11 that he is the resurrection and the life, he was giving all believers the deep theology 
of the plan of salvation. Then, this week, we buried Alicia Owens, a time of deep sorrow and grief. And it seems, as it were, to be contradictory that as believers we would proclaim victory over death and then turn right around and struggle with the struggles of loss. And God knows these things. He knows our struggles. He knows our thoughts afar off. Jesus knows the struggles of our hearts to believe. And so he gives us clear teaching that our faith would be in him. And so this morning as we go through the teaching of death, I pray that it would cause you to put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone. As I had the opportunity to sit with Miss Lang, we were talking about these things, and she said, this is it. This is, the, this is where we hope. This is everything, right? And I said, absolutely. There's no other basket to put our eggs in. This requires 100% of your hope. Pastor read from Romans chapter 8, and we'll go back to that, and it says you're saved by hope. What that means is this hope is not just a wish. This hope is a, an earnest expectation where you have given yourself completely to it. It's interesting this morning as we see what Jesus says here in this passage, even the wording Jesus employs will remind us that he is the resurrection and the life And this wording is going to lead us into other passages that will expand upon that truth. There's a lot of extra-biblical teaching out there about death, a lot of speculation, a lot of false teaching about death. And Paul is going to answer some of those questions through different passages that we'll look at today. But I want us to be reminded that God's Word is the truth, the whole truth. And to take that truth and extrapolate and build on it, the theories of man is incorrect and cannot bring hope and it cannot bring life. We'll find as we go throughout our study together today that there is no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory was the creation of the thoughts of men and it's been used for centuries to manipulate people out of money and time and church attendance and good works. That is not how our God works. That is not the plan of salvation. There's no aspect of soul sleep mentioned in Scripture. There is no payment for sin that is in any other way provided besides the death of Jesus Christ. And there is no sin unforgivable except the sin of rejecting the resurrection and the life. I remember giving a tour here at Calvary and getting to know the family, and as I got to know the family, they let me know that recently the mother had passed away and tragically had passed away by, by suicide, and, and they're so downtrodden about this thing, and, 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 and he said one kind of comment that just was in despair. And I said, listen, if, if she was a believer in Jesus Christ, that sin is forgiven. He stepped back and he looked at me and he said, What? No, 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 no. I've always been taught that suicide means you go to hell. And I said, well, you can't find that in Scripture. So this morning, let's go to Scripture. Let's allow the Word of God to teach us the truth and realize that comfort and strength in these things come from the truth of God's Word. It's interesting that in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll be turning there in a minute, Paul combats false teaching on the subject of Christians who have lost loved ones. And he starts it out by saying, in verse 13 of chapter 4, I would not have you to be ignorant. And he ends the passage by saying, comfort one another with these words. All right, and I hope that that will be our, our process this morning, that we would not be ignorant, and as we come to understand that, that we would be comforted. There is a comforting quality of truth. There's a comforting quality of truth. And this happens, this happens especially in areas of deep struggle and doubt. We, none of us have been to the other side and come back. And so we have questions, and these questions can't simply be answered through experience. Earlier uh, this semester, someone in our church brought Pastor and I a letter, and it said, there is a 
$50,000 or $500,000 prize for the person who can write the most convincing essay on what happens after death. And the person brought it to me and said, hey, I know you're bored. You don't have much to do. Here you go. And uh, wouldn't this be great if we, could, uh, if we could do this? And so it was interesting. As I looked it over, it was a very rich man uh, out west who had lost his son and his wife. Uh, tragically, at different times, and was employing the greatest minds of the day. That's why he came to me. Uh, Anyway, he was employing the greatest minds of the day to put together an essay on what happens after death. And uh, as I was reading through it, it came to the point where it said, you cannot use biblical reference. Okay? He said, in his explanation, and I'll paraphrase, he said something about, we understand that every religion has an idea of death, uh, that's not sufficient, and it can be referenced, but it won't be allowed to be used as evidence. And I thought, okay, well, this, for as smart as this guy is, he's an idiot, right? No one goes and comes back and tells us what happens. Yes, there's books written by eight-year-olds, supposedly, but we'll get to that later, right? Uh, this, this, what this man wanted was scientific evidence and I'm, I'm speculating here, he doesn't say this in his paper, but scientific evidence that his son and his wife were in a better place and that he would see them soon. Here's the problem. In my understanding of his letter, he has rejected the word of God. It doesn't matter how smart the person sounds. It doesn't matter how much evidence the person can give scientifically. That man will never come to peace and faith and hope through another man's speculation on what he has no right to talk about. Right? As soon as we read the part about the Bible, we threw it away. We said, well, this is worthless, right? Because we put all of our hope in the Word of God. You see, truth brings comfort. Have you ever been to a funeral where the pastor speaking was saying things that you knew were not true? Right? Have you ever been to a funeral where a pastor was putting that person into heaven and you're like, ah, did you not know this guy? Right? It's done on other levels, too. I mean, have you ever heard somebody say, you know, Billy loved fishing, and I'm sure he's in heaven fishing right now. You know, that, that sounds nice, and I don't know if there's fishing in heaven, but that doesn't comfort us, right? We don't know those things. Here's the thing. Our loving, our loving God has given us rock-solid truth in his word that can bring us that comfort that only truth can bring. So point number one, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he has redeemed both our bodies and our spirits. Jesus states in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, And so as the resurrection and the life, Jesus has redeemed both our spirits and our bodies. Man is more than body. You know that. All throughout Scripture, God speaks of man having a body and a soul. Now, some believe body, soul, and spirit. We won't hash out those nuances today. But we know that man is more than a physical existence. The body is a physical and temporary housing for the eternal part of man, which we would call the soul. The soul of man is dead in sin, though the body lives before salvation. And it is the soul then that is made alive, as we speak in Ephesians chapter 2. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The body is alive, the soul is dead. Through salvation, the soul is made alive. It is redeemed. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul is writing, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price." That's redemption, to buy back. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your what? In your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Jesus, through salvation, redeems both our spirits and our bodies. Romans 8.10 says this, If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Or the body is dying because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken 
your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Listen to what's being said here. Because Christ is in you, your spirit is redeemed. You are alive, but your body is dying. But, but don't be ignorant. He that raised up Christ from the dead will also redeem your body. Your spirit is redeemed. Your body will be redeemed. You see, the salvation of believers is complete. This includes the immaterial aspect of man, the spirit, what we call maybe our mind, will, our volition, our heart, when we speak of that in Scripture. But it also includes the body. Now listen, the redemption of your soul is complete. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, your soul, which was dead in trespasses and sins, has been made alive. And there, that, we're gonna, that is going to lead us into the other teaching that says that if you are to die today, your spirit will not die, and it will be with the Lord, and it will not need to be changed. You have been saved in your spirit. You are a, the, the seed of the divine, the seed of God. Jesus Christ lives within you and makes you acceptable to God. You're saved. From sin. Christ took on our payment of sin. He paid the death that was the penalty of our sin so that if we were to drop dead today, our spirit has been redeemed. There's no process of change. There's no sanctification that takes place after you die. Your spirit immediately enters the presence of God because you have been saved. Your spirit has been redeemed. But it goes beyond that, and our bodies will be redeemed as well. Look at, at John eleven twenty five. 25. If you're in John 11 still, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on me shall never die. These verses could be confusing, but let me just, let me just help you here. John eleven twenty five 25 is primarily talking about the body. Listen. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, though his body is right over there in that cave. Right? We read about that earlier. Though he were dead, yet he shall live. Jesus restores Lazarus to life, and it's a picture of what he will do for all believers bodily. But then, verse 26, he transitions to talk about the Spirit when he says this, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He's talking about your spirit. You see, that verse 26 is us. We live, and we will never die. You've probably gotten sick of hearing it, but over the past month or two months, you've heard me say from this podium, I will never die! And if you come to my funeral, remind me of that. What? Right? Though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's bodily redemption. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That is spiritual redemption. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says it this way. Paul's writing says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish... Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Did you know that your spiritual vitality, your spiritual life, and your physical life are diametrically opposed, or they, they go in the opposite direction? As you are aging, well, it says here, the outward man perish. And all the people over 40 said, Amen. I'm, I'm in that category now, so that's why I said 40 and not 70. <clears throat> All right, so the body is passing away. We know that. We felt the effects of that this morning, right? We recognize that the body is passing away. Yet the inward man is actually, I want to say, getting younger, but becoming more full of life. And all those that are over 40 said, what? Man, I sure expected a lot more amens on that one. All right. You know, they say youth is wasted on the wrong people. And, and I tell you what, for a Christian, we recognize that, right? We say, oh, there's so much to life, real life, true life, spiritual life. See, Alicia went through this, and as I had opportunity to talk with Pastor Bosworth, as Pastor Bosworth was able to visit her over the past year, he saw this taking place where the outward man was perishing. 
But the joyous testimony was that as the outward man was perishing, her inward man, the redeemed spirit of Alicia Owens, was growing stronger. Her testimony was becoming more pronounced. Her faith in Christ was deepening. This is the truth of redemption. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he has redeemed both body and spirit. Point number two, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, physical death is changed. We spent time about learning about this or, or reading through it and studying it on resurrection morning as we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, and I won't go through the entire passage, but let me encourage you to regularly read 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about the resurrection of you. It's all about the, the bodily resurrection of believers. Physical death for the believer is only temporary and necessary to be fit for heaven. If you're in John 11, look at verse 11. It's interesting, the wording used in the New Testament for death for believers. Look at what Jesus says in John 11 and verse 11. Right? So a messenger comes and says, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus tarries, and then Jesus speaks to his disciples in verse 11, and it says, After these things he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Jesus knew that he wasn't like throwing up some Z's, right? Jesus knew that he wasn't physically, in a sense, sleeping as we think. But he says this, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. He's on a different page, though, because his disciples go, oh, great, if he's sleeping, he'll do well. He's getting better. Howbeit, Jesus spoke of his death. So let me just say this. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, physical death, in our understanding of it, is totally changed. In fact, it's changed so much that we don't call it death in the, in the Bible. We call it sleep. His disciples say, well, he's sleeping, that's great. But Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. Then saith Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Right? Oh! But see, there's a big difference between the disciples' understanding of death and Jesus' understanding of death. Jesus' understanding of death for the believer is that he is the resurrection and the life. And because of that, we can just quantify this as sleep. Temporary repose. That will not last. Take your Bibles now if you would turn to that passage in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. By the way, as you read through the New Testament, you're going to see time and time again, you're going to start recognizing that the word sleep is used for death when speaking of believers. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are what? Asleep. That you sorrow not. Now we know this isn't talking about evening rest. You don't sorrow when your kids go to bed. You rejoice. Hallelujah. They're sleeping. <laughs> right? He says, Don't be ignorant about those who are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. This word for sleep here in the Greek is actually the Greek word from which we get our English word cemetery. And believers would call it cemeteries, not graveyards, because of the truth that it was only temporary. It's a place of rest. The word sleep is a word that we speak of when we speak of that regular evening recovery process. And Jesus, because he is the resurrection and life, death has lost its permanence. So much so that the Bible speaks of it as being a temporary form of rest for the body of the believer. Now, it's interesting, the context of 1 Thessalonians is so appropriate for where we're at today. Paul had been teaching them the truth of Christ's return, that it was imminent. What does it mean when we talk about the imminent return of Christ? It means there is nothing else that needs to happen historically for Jesus to come and take the church home. All right, if you're technical about it, this is called the pre-tribulation rapture theory. And some people disagree with it. That's okay. 
When it happens, you'll agree with... Okay, never mind. All right. <clears throat> so Paul is teaching about the imminent return of Christ, and the church is loving it. They believe it. They believe it so much so that when one of their loved ones dies, they're totally grieved that the dead person was going to miss the rapture. Paul, you said it was coming, and they didn't make it. What's going to happen to them? They were very concerned about their loved ones who died before Christ returned. And so Paul writes to them this wonderful passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. By the way, these are God's words. So follow along. We'll go back up to verse 13 and read down through verse 17. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus God, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. How many of you ever sang that song as a kid? There's going to be a meeting in the air. Right? This is where that comes from, right? There's this time of, of restoration of family and of church, of church family, of beloved ones as Christ returns Obviously, this event we know as the rapture of the church. Jesus returns in the clouds. He takes his church out of the world. Those who are living will be caught up together with Christ and will be changed. The first song that was played during the uh, prelude this morning was a church called We Will, or a song, a song called We Will Be Changed. It's talking about this that when Christ returns, we will be changed. What will be changed? Will our spirits be changed? No, they are already redeemed. What will be changed? Our bodies. Our bodies will be redeemed. They will be changed. Right? But not only those who are living, but those who are dead or those who are asleep will be resurrected and will be changed. Right? This includes, this, this passage of scripture includes both living Christians and those whose bodies are in the ground. Sleeping. Just as Jesus returned to the grave of Lazarus to wake him from his temporary sleep, so Jesus, the resurrection and life, will return to the graves of all believers and call them forth from their sleep. I'm excited about this. I know some people who are in the grave. Their bodies are in the grave. And I don't know if the Lord will allow me to be alive, but I could think of nothing better than to be sitting by the grave of my father when this happens, it'd be amazing. I don't know how it's going to happen. It's a twinkling of an eye. I miss a lot of things in life. Uh, but it's going to be amazing, right? God is going to call my father's body of a sister who's also buried in Colorado. They will be called out of the grave and taken with the Lord and myself if I live to that day. Once again, my body is telling me that's not going to happen. All right. Well, what about those who have been dead for hundreds of years or thousands of years? What about those who died tragically in fires, were eaten, were destroyed in warfare? What happens to them? Well, let me read to you from Scripture what will happen to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 42, you turn there with me, we'll read a number of verses from 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, 42, it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. By the way, corruption here just mean, it doesn't mean sinfulness. It means temporariness. Uh, it means passing away. It means the body. The, this body is corruptible, meaning it is dying. Okay? So it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Okay, and so, listen, just as Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried, 
but rose again. And in his resurrection, he was given a glorified body. Now, that glorified body still looked like Jesus because they recognized him. But that glorified body also walked with two guys on the road to Emmaus, as we read last Sunday, sat with them, ate with them, and disappeared. Actually, I don't know if he actually ate there. It says he broke the bread. They recognized him, and he disappeared. But where did he go? He went back to Jerusalem, sat with the disciples, ate some fish, and disappeared. There's something different about Jesus' body, okay? It's a glorified body. It's a spiritual body, right? But here's what's happening. The body is, is, is physical. It is cursed by sin because of the Garden of Eden and sin sense. It's cursed. It's passing away. It will be buried, but it will be raised in a way that is called incorruptible, that is called spiritual, that is called glorified, okay? What does that exactly look like? As a kid, I just... I would sit there during church and imagine what a glorified body could do. Walk through walls, right? Because Jesus did that. Fly, maybe. Disappear and reappear. Ascend, you know. And, and of course, at that point, I didn't know what the pastor was talking about. I had a superhero cape on and was doing all sorts of cool things. All right. Kids, don't do that. All right. Moving on. Look what it says here in verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, the last Adam, that would be Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have Born the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Okay? So he's teaching us something here about life after death. Physical, maybe not physical, but bodily life after death is different. It's not subject to the laws of nature. It's not subject to the law of entropy. It's not subject to death. It is raised spiritual. And then, of course, he launches into verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we, those that are alive, shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And that's why we call death sleep. So the body, the body will be redeemed. Death is no longer death. The body is now fit to be in the presence of God, just as the Spirit was made fit at that point of salvation. You see it? You see the order, the timeline here? So Jesus, the creator of all bodies, is going to do a miraculous work of recreation, changing our bodies to be fit for eternal worship in heaven. And this would include any person who died yesterday as opposed to a thousand years ago. Those, by the way, I don't know if you know, but the idea of bonfire, right, came from something called bone fires where they would burn people. And the Roman church would hate people so much. Uh, the Roman Catholic church would hate these reformers so much that they, oftentimes they would dig up their bones and burn them so that Jesus couldn't raise them up. What? That makes no sense. God is the creator. So any scenario you can think of about the body being done away with, Jesus is the creator. With a word, he spoke all things into existence. It says that this, when this corruption puts on incorruption, it will be a work of power. It will be a work of resurrection. It will be a work of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 says this, For our conversation, our lifestyle is in heaven. For whence we also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, who will change our vile body. Now, I didn't go that far as to call you people that, but it's the Bible. He will change our vile bodies. I'll say this, compared to a spiritual body, 
uh, that spiritual body must be a lot better, right? If the word vile is used for what we have now. Who will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So because Jesus is the resurrection and life, physical death is changed to sleep. Because there will be what was used in the old times, a great getting up morning. Where the bodies of those who have passed into sleep will be changed and made glorious. When the dead in Christ rise first and their bodies will be remade like unto Christ, so also those who are alive and remain, their bodies will be changed. So point number three, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, our souls will not experience death. Our souls will not experience death. Our bodies, yes, they'll experience temporary death called sleep. But our souls will not experience death. The sleep of those that are asleep does not refer to the soul. This is why when Jesus is speaking, he says, Whoso liveth and believeth in me shall never die. There is an aspect of death for the body, but there's something that is spiritual that the death that takes place in the body doesn't touch, and that is the spirit. This is what Jesus is speaking of when he talks to Nicodemus. And as we read at the beginning of the service, when he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not... What? That's talking about your soul. That's talking about the destruction of sin in hell. That's talking about the eternal perishing. Should not perish, but have what? What is the definition of everlasting life? It doesn't stop. It cannot cease. In fact, no man can pluck that out of the Father's hand. You cannot lose your salvation. Your soul cannot inherit eternal life at salvation and lose it. That's called temporary life. What you gain by grace and faith through Jesus Christ, you cannot lose through works. There's a permanence to the salvation of your soul. When Jesus saves, he saves eternally. This is, I love the illustration of the life of Stephen, right? Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Turn to Acts. You need to look at it. It's exciting when, you, when, when the Lord allows us to connect the dots of theology and practice and teaching in our own lives and the lives of those in Scripture. Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. By the way, just so you know, Stephen is brought before the, the, the religious leaders of the day and he preaches to them a hard message. He comes down to the point where he says, You with wicked hands took this God, Jesus. You took him and you killed him. Right? And so it comes down to verse 54. It says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That's called truth, right? The conviction of truth. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. And he, or but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's just throwing fuel on the fire, right? These people do not want to hear that Jesus is, is God. And so Stephen says, while they're gnashing on him with their teeth, I don't know what that exactly means. I don't think they were actually chewing on him. But they were, they were so irate. They were angry. They were rushing on him. And he looks up into heaven and he says, I see Jesus standing with God. Well, that, that was just fuel to the fire. Look what happened. This says, then, verse 57, they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Grown men shoving their fingers in their ears like kindergartners. And ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. This would later be Paul. Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen. And Stephen was calling on God, saying, what? Lord Jesus, receive my body. Some of you were reading. Good. I'm glad you recognize that's not what it says. Stoned Stephen, and Stephen was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now listen, look at the next verse. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, 
What happened? Fell asleep. There was a receiving of Stephen's spirit. In fact, God gave Stephen a vision of heaven as he was about to die. And as Stephen died, his body fell asleep. That's a different definition of it means to rock somebody to sleep. Sorry, I couldn't help it. All right, so, so Stephen, Stephen's body falls asleep, tragically. But Stephen's spirit is issued into the presence of Jesus Christ. Receive my spirit, and the body went to the ground and was buried. At the time of physical death, the believer is consciously in the presence of God forever. This is taught all throughout the New Testament. Remember when Jesus is teaching about the rich man and Lazarus? Different Lazarus, by the way. This Lazarus was a poor beggar man. And Jesus says that both men died. And their spirits were immediately in one of two places. One was, was paradise. And the passage is called Abraham's bosom. It's a place of blessing. And it's a place of, of, of no torment. Right? It's the presence of Christ. It's with God. But the rich man died and his soul was immediately in a place of torment. Their bodies weren't there yet, but their spirits were there and their spirits were experiencing one of two things. There is something about death that is, for an unbeliever, a terrifying idea that the soul is now tormented eternally. You see, for the believer, the spirit is issued into the presence of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is life And in his presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But there is something where Jesus' presence is not in that sense. And it is hell. And it is where the spirit or soul of the unbeliever goes to perish eternally. There's something about the soul that can experience torment. That separation from God, that separation from the life, which is Jesus Christ, is the torment of hell. And by the way, the, way the, the best way Jesus could describe the torment of hell was to use the illustration of burning eternally. Kids who would joke about hell being a place they want to go because all their friends are there have never put their hand in the birthday candle. Right? I don't recommend it. But Jesus described the torment of the soul in hell as something that was horrible. Right? Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, and it not going away. 1 Corinthians teaches us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In fact, he says this, while we're in an earthly house, our tabernacle, it dissolves. But we have a building of God, a house not made with hands and eternal in heaven. And he says, for this we groan and earnestly desire to be clothed upon by this That's why when we read in Scripture, we read that passage that says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 2 Corinthians says in verse 5 and verse 6, or chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Listen, no boy went to heaven, saw God in heaven, and came back to tell us. Because he would no longer walk by faith. Right? We don't walk by the testimony of an eight-year-old boy who says he's been to heaven and back and heaven is for real. We don't do that. We walk by faith in God's word. Heaven is for real because God said it's for real. Heaven is for real because God says you will come there eternally. Not because somebody's testimony. Okay? So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now listen, this all sounds wonderful in such a way, but but dying is still called the valley of the shadow of death. It's not called skipping on the mountainside of flowers. It's called the valley of the shadow of death. These still are the pangs of sin in our life as our body passes away. But what does Jesus say in Psalm 100? He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no... 
Why? For thou art with me. What comfort, right? What comfort comes to, as you consider loved ones that you have buried, what comfort comes to you when you recognize they did not die alone? If they were believers in Jesus Christ, they died with Christ. In fact, they didn't die with Christ. He ushered them into eternity, into his eternal presence. And there was no death. This hit me harder at, than any other time in my life when a few years ago uh, we learned of a young man here at Calvary who fell out of his boat and drowned in the Waccamaw River. And if you've been in the Waccamaw River, you can't see two feet in front of you, a foot in front of you if you're under the water. And as we didn't know what had happened to him from one day to the next day, and as we considered what was going on, and to think of him under the water perishing was a terrible thing. But I tell you what, the Lord, if he was a believer in Christ, the Lord was with him. And the Lord ushered him from that into his presence. There was no death. There was no corruption of the Spirit. The soul of the believer will not experience a millisecond of death, not one millisecond of separation from God, the giver of life. So then Jesus reminds us of what awaits for us on the other side. John 14, we'll get there, so we won't spend a lot of time on it, but it says, let not your heart be troubled. I'm about to give you some truth that will help your heart not be troubled, right? If you believe in me, if you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. You know, I, I, a little bit of speculation here. I don't know what it means when it says Jesus is preparing a place. But the place for Elisha had been prepared and Jesus came and took her there. And it's wonderful. And it's beautiful. And it's glorious. And there's coming a day for all believers where Jesus will take you to the place that he himself has prepared for you. Let not your heart be troubled. There is a place prepared for us. Jesus is the builder. We won't take time today to read about it, but just go through the book of Revelation and read about heaven. We sang about it. We've sung about it for the past few weeks, but we sing about it to end our resurrection service by singing the song, No More Night, No More Pain, No More Tears. But then just read about it. It's amazing. Things that we value in this life are like, wow, right? So if you're traveling through Myrtle Beach and you go down 544 and you kind of go up this little rise, that's our biggest mountain, right? <laughs> but you just get dumped in Alaska if you've only been in Myrtle Beach and you're like, whoa, right? So here we, like, we buy diamonds for our wives, Right? We take little microscopes and look at them in heaven, man. There's gates made of these things. I mean, just read about heaven. And it's described as a place of eternal pleasure in the presence of our Savior. So let me, I know we're going long. I apologize. This is just exciting stuff. But let me end with this. This is actually the main point of the sermon. That was all introduction. Now our main point. All right. <laughs> what is your response to truth? You have to respond to truth. When truth is presented, you respond whether you like it or not. We don't often have come forward invitations in our service, but it doesn't matter. You're responding, right? Right in here, you're responding. You're either callousing yourself to truth and rejecting it, or you're accepting it, or you're forgetfully hearing it, right? What should our response be to these things? Well, it's interesting. The responses are given to us in each passage, right? John 14, we just said it. Let not your heart be troubled. As you think about loved ones, as you think about those who have died, as you think about your own death, as you think maybe about death of your children or death of those who don't understand, or, or I have a brother with Down syndrome, I don't, know what, I, I don't know how much he understands about Scripture, but I tell you what, the Bible says, don't let your heart be troubled. You have a God who is the resurrection and the life, and He is the one who saves. Don't let your heart be troubled. 
It's easy to question the presence of God during times of deep trial and sickness and death and loss. But remind yourself of the glories of heaven for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Believers should not avoid death, right? We should not avoid death. There is, a, there is an avoidance in our, even in our society of death. If we went and lived in a third world country, we'd be much more exposed to death. Sometimes you have to step over it on the street. It's not like that in America. We have morgues and nice graveyards or cemeteries and all these things. But don't avoid death. In fact, you would be wise to consider death, even your own death. One thing I loved is as we went through the service on Tuesday for Alicia Owens, she had written some of her service. That's awesome. That's awesome. She, she, she wanted the people in the service to rejoice in her hope. I love that. But I'll tell you what, the wisest man that ever lived, lived told us, don't you avoid death and definitely don't avoid thinking about your own death. Let me read to you from Ecclesiastes, which was written by Solomon. He said this, A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death rather than the day of one's birth. It means your funeral is way more important than your birthdays. It is better to go in the house of mourning than to go into the house of, e- of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Believer, if you're struggling with your attitude and your spirit and depression, and discouragement and anxiety, you would be wise to consider that when you shed this mortal body, you will be in the presence of Jesus Christ in a place called heaven. And you know, when you start thinking about those things, whatever would cause you that discouragement, depression, and frustration seem to not be that big of a deal. And that's the truth. You may live on this earth for 80, 90, 100 years, but you will live eternally in heaven. If Christ is your Savior. It says that the heart of a fool is in the house of mirth. Those who have no hope beyond this life better party it up now. Because they will know nothing of the glories of heaven. But for believers, we put aside things on this earth. Because it ain't going to touch that party that's coming. And I don't mean to be sacrilegious. All right. As a believer thinks biblically about death, there is a longing then that grips the heart. Okay, and listen, I want to be careful how I state this. But Paul says it this way, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. Right? In fact, he says it this way, because we have hope, our earnest expectation is that we will be made, will be taken to the presence of God and will be changed. And he says he says, all of this is happening, and we, in fact, we groan in our spirits longing for it. I know that Miss Owens in her last days expressed to the pastor an impatience, a desire to shed this cancer-wracked body and to be with her Savior. My dad came home after a heart surgery and said, when I woke up, I was somewhat disappointed. I thought I was going to go to heaven. My mom promptly slapped him and said, you've got nine kids. Don't say that again. Why, if we're believers, do we not say, okay, let's go sit on a mountainside somewhere and just look for Jesus' return? Why, why, why don't we just take our own lives? I mean, wouldn't it be better to be with the Lord than to go through this? Oh, you see, if Christ lives within you, he also works in you. Another thing. So, so first it says, don't let your heart be troubled. Then he says, comfort yourselves with the loss. When you lose loved ones, comfort yourselves recognizing that one day the Lord will return and take their bodies and you'll go and there will be a rejoining, right? We talk, you know, the song we sang was, I want to see my Savior first of all, right? Face to, or we didn't sing face to face. What did we sing? I shall know him. And he says, even in the glories of heaven, I just, I just want to meet my Savior's face, right? But I tell you what, there is also a second aspect of heaven where we will be reunited with loved ones who know Christ as Savior, and it will be a glorious thing. We will be able to enjoy the relationships we had on earth. That's why the song is a great getting up morning. It's talking about a reunion. Comfort yourself that those who who knew Christ, you will see again. There's a resurrection coming. But lastly, I want you to turn, and we'll finish with this. 
Lastly, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. Well, before you do that, I'm going to let me bring out my uh, one more point. Sorry. I can't I can't pass it. The passage where we talked about to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord goes on. And and Paul says this. He says, we are confident, I say, that we're willing to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But he goes on, though, and he says this, knowing this, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You see, for believers who recognize the truth of heaven must also recognize the truth of hell. And as you recognize the difference and the disparity between them, and you love people on this earth, what do you want for those who would be in torment? Salvation. You want them to know the word of God. Paul is actually defending his own testimony here when he says this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade many, saying, look, we know that God is going to hold everybody accountable. And so I will live before you in a way that is righteous, and I will plead with you to know Christ. Tell you what, believers don't commit suicide because we recognize we are the hands and the voices and the the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ to spread the message of heaven. We have purpose. It doesn't matter if you're a garbage man. That garbage man has purpose that is equal to any pastor's. And that is the Great Commission. Now we'll finish. Number four. First of all, don't let your heart be troubled. Second of all, comfort yourself with these words. Thirdly, knowing the terror of the Lord, persuade men. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God, which giveth us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. It goes on to verse 58. And it says, therefore, because of this, this whole chapter teaches the resurrection and Jesus' defeat of death and sin. He says, because of this, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. And it doesn't end there. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I tell you what, I have watched believers be devastated by the loss of a loved one. It has crippled them and has sent them into depression It has been debilitating to their whole life because they don't understand these things. Because when you understand them, they comfort you and they give you great purpose in living. Paul said, for me to stay is much better because God has a purpose for me, so I will stay. He doesn't take me home yet. A believer should never comprehend or think about suicide because God has a purpose for them. But I tell you what, if you, someone said it this way, you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. Believers should be ready to die, and that should embolden them to live in such a way that is radical. Actually, it's steadfast, unmovable. You can throw anything at me. You can throw theories at me. You can throw financial problems at me. We can lose our freedom as Americans, but I will be steadfast and unmovable, and I ain't stopping to work for Christ. I'm working until that day when my place is finished being prepared and Christ calls me home. Do you lack purpose in your life? Maybe you need to read about your end, or should I say the beginning. Maybe you need to understand Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, and because of that, he gives us great purpose in this life. Hope never allows us to turn to despair. Sorrow, we sorrow, don't we? If you've buried someone you love, you sorrow. You still sorrow. There's still an aspect of loss. But hope refuses to allow sorrow to lead to despair. Hope refuses to allow sorrow to lead to depression. Hope refuses to allow sorrow to lead to debilitation. Hope pulls a believer back into purposeful living. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would just, you've been very patient, I'd just plead with you. 
plead with you this morning. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, these things that we have spoken today have, have no place in your life. There is only eternal torment. For those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope this morning that your heart is not troubled. I hope that you have been able to be comforted by these words. I hope that as you hear these words, you desire to see others come to know Christ as Savior. And lastly, I pray that you are steadfast, unmovable, and have great purpose in living.